Hello, and welcome to this episode of Talking Television in a Time of Crisis. We'll get to the episode shortly, but before starting, we wanted to take a moment to recognize and honor groundbreaking scholar Jane Fuhrer, who passed away on January 8, 2021. The author of three landmark books about film and television, MTM, Quality Television, The Hollywood Musical, and Seeing Through the 80s, along with dozens of important articles and chapters, Fuhrer helped to establish the field of television studies. Jane Fuhrer inspired and influenced so many, including her students at the University of Pittsburgh, where she taught undergraduate and graduate courses for nearly 40 years. In 1989, she helped found Consoling Passions, a feminist media studies conference, which is now established an award in her name, the Consoling Passions Jane Fuhrer Graduate Student Award. This is Lynn Joyrich. I met Jane when I was a graduate student. Her work showed me what television studies could be. She was truly an inspiration to me, and I'm so grateful that she grew from being an admired but distant scholar of whom I was in awe to a valuable mentor over the years to, over the decades, a good friend. But she never stopped being an inspiration. To this day, I've never taught a television studies course nor written a television studies article that didn't extensively use and cite her work. She's there in all my thoughts. She was unique, brilliant, and absolutely hilarious, a true character. In fact, when her book, Seen Through the 80s, came out, many people assumed that it was Jane herself on the cover with the Dynasty characters. It was actually Dynasty creator Esther Shapiro. But it could have, maybe should have, been Jane, together with Blake and Crystal Carrington, as fabulous and fierce as any melodramatic character could ever hope to be. I will miss her. This episode is dedicated to her. May her memory be a blessing. Thanks, Hunter, Brandy, and Lynn. And thank you to the ACA Media podcast series organized by Chris Becker and sponsored by SCMS and the Journal for Cinema and Media Studies. And of course, thank you to our listeners. I'm happy to be moderating the episode of Talking Television in a Time of Crisis on the topic of optics, and I'm happy to be hosting an episode dedicated to Jane Fewer, whom I also met as a grad student when she was also a grad student. So we were, for many decades, close friends and colleagues. The Talking Television podcast series started this past summer under the title Talking Television in a Pandemic, inspired by the desire to explore television's role in mediating the intersecting pandemics of COVID-19 and anti-Black violence. In the light of these and other ongoing crises, a new season of Talking Television started last fall. We continue to bring together media scholars and media makers to think and talk together about both how television and how television studies speak to our current situation. And of course, I, we stress that television exists in many different forms from network and cable to streaming and online TV. And television studies, we imagine capaciously to include work on production, texts, reception, and social and cultural contexts. Thus far in our latest installment of the series, we've tackled the topics of politics, tactics, and economics. This episode is focused on optics. We'll explore questions regarding television's reputation, its own complicated image, 
and how it negotiates that while circulating other images, yielding further complications. How does TV manage or fail to manage social and political crises around the world? How does it manage or fail to manage its own internal crises of media change, of representation, of legitimation, in precarious cultural moments and climates of unrest? How does that precarity relate to issues of race, gender, class, and so on, even as we've been told by some that TV is now beyond old images of race, gender, class, and so on? What do calls for combating structural racism and sexism in the industry make possible, and what might they foreclose or obscure? What will be the future image of television? These are the kinds of issues we'll be discussing with our great group of our panelists today, participant discussants. We have with us Eva Hageman, Assistant Professor of American Studies and of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at the University of Maryland. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited and nervous to be here. <laughs> Darnell Hunt, Professor of African American Studies and Sociology and Dean of Social Sciences at UCLA. Great to be here. Melissa Brooks-Sichart, Assistant Professor of Film, Television, and Media at the University of Michigan. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. And Brenda Weber, the Provost Professor and Jean C. Robinson Scholar of Gender Studies at Indiana University. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I also wanted to say if any of the listeners are interested in donating to the Jane Fewer Fund to support graduate students through Consoling Passions, we would happily accept uh, any donation, small or large. The information for that will be posted on the Acamedia site as well as on the Consoling Passions website. Thanks. And I'm Mimi White from the Radio TV Film Department at Northwestern University. So let's get started. I think that we're going to start with events in time and space that are relatively proximate, but we will move out from there as we proceed. We've gone through a period, and I think we're still in a period, of rather heightened anxiety, unrest, and uncertainty, especially exacerbated with the post-election events and the attempted coup to overturn the election, among many other things. Maybe we can start with thinking about how we think television is situated in rela relation to those events and how it functioned in that moment and in that moment thought of as both the day of the coup and the kind of enlarged context in which television existed up to that moment and in the last few months of the aftermath. So I'm opening that up to our participants in a fairly broad way and you can kind of come into that however you see fit. This is Darnell. What I find interesting about the moment is the ambiguity of what we mean by television right now. Traditionally, of course, in the old days of you know, old media, we, we, we thought about the, the networks and um, setting the agenda and, and talking about what was important and framing um, reality, the reality that we all live in. But as we know, we have people living in different realities now who have access to completely different information, information that's being... Um, uh, reinforced through bubbles of like-minded people through social media, uh, smartphones, alternative media of various sorts, um, many of them trafficking in video images of some sort. So, you know, what are the boundaries of TV here that we're talking about? Are we talking about traditional 
commercial television or are we talking about the full range of ways that people digest and expose themselves to to media. I think for me, the, the defining characteristic of the moment is fragmentation. The fact that there isn't one place where everyone goes and sees the same thing. So I think the traditional media have been struggling with that because I think their conventional or traditional role was to sort of, you know, be the arbiter of truth and, and what's real and what's not. And, and they're kind of in their own crisis trying to figure out how in many ways they're somewhat impotent in reaching certain types of people right now. And, and if you just sample the, the various types of coverage across, you know, say an MSNBC or a Fox or even local news or some of these other newer right-wing outlets, you have completely different approaches to trying to make sense of the moment. Um, it's really quite extraordinary if you think about it. And so I think the real challenge for us is trying to figure out, well, how can we establish a common frame of reference around facts, truth, the types of things that one needs in a democracy to address the many, many problems that we're dealing with in this particular fraught moment. Thanks. I think that what you just said was really important. And as we go through this conversation, I know people will say television does this or television doesn't do that. And they think everyone has a very common understanding of what television is. And maybe we have to actually pluralize that and talk about different kinds of television or multiple televisions, whether that's historical change or in the present moment when there's so many different things. And I think that um, you've really, you know, by kickstarting us off with that, it's really important. And as we talk, when we're saying things about television, we can all be really attentive to the particular television we think we have in mind. But you've also highlighted certain kinds of the crisis of the status or perception of what television even is that sort of gets laminated onto all these issues this is Brenda Weber at Indiana University. I was just uh, wanting to add to that, that one of the things that makes television studies such a fun area to investigate as a scholar is that it's both about the apparatus, the thing you're watching it on, and the content, the, the ideas that are coming to you, the narratives, the messages, etc., um, and in this moment, you know, where you can be watching TV on your phone or your laptop or on a, a big flat screen mounted on your wall, or you can watch it on a cinema 20-foot screen if you want to, it, it really uh, begins to ask uh, interesting questions about what is it that we're studying when we're studying television. Uh, but one of the things that I find interesting, too, also to Darnell's point, is that you can be watching multiple kinds of television all at once. So, uh, you know, for instance, Mimi, you started us out talking about the siege on the Capitol, and I was watching live newsfeed and following Twitter, and I had on, uh, uh, I was toggling back and forth between CNN and MSNBC because I needed Rachel Maddow's take on what was <laughs> happening, right? And so for me, it's, it's the conversation between media types that constitutes television in our moment that is also important. I have a question building out of that. Do you think that when you toggle through all of these different forms and variants of television and other social media that are dealing with you know, something as critical as an attempted coup, does that amp up or assuage your anxieties about what's going on? Well, 
<laughs> I'll tell you what, the New York Times reporters were apoplectic in their uh, live tweeting of what was happening uh, because I had just gone to the New York Times homepage in order to follow the confirmation process. And then suddenly they're saying, look, there's a whole other story happening outside this room. And when they started talking about pulling gas masks out and things like that, that's when I thought, I've got to get on the TV so I can see images of what's happening here. Uh, so in that case, I think it really increased both my anxiety and my sense that there's something really serious happening here. And if all of those elements are speaking together, I think it would uh, reinforce there's something important at stake. This is Melissa Prixishart from the University of Michigan. Um, for me, uh, the white riot of January 6th, I think for me, sort of marked a moment in which I realized that uh, what we expect out of liveness now, live news, TV can no longer or was not able to index. So when I first heard that this was happening, um, it was because my friend had texted me. And so I immediately went to Twitter and, you know, within seconds, saw footage of the woman who was shot in the neck. And, you know, I know that attendees at the Capitol were live streaming uh, on Twitch. And, um, you know, I think the kind of repeated footage that was shown on the on mainstream media it was just sort of it was very limited and very I think dissatisfying to me compared to what um, I could see on Twitter and on um, on other kind of live streaming sites and the way that every you know niche group is able to narrate the events in their Twitter communities or or Twitch you know the mainstream news media's narration of it which i tried to dip into that evening it was it was really frustrating to just keep hearing them give more airtime to republicans asking them if they thought they had played any part in it so yeah to me it was it was very unsatisfying this is eva hegeman at uh university of maryland i really found it unsatisfying but also was watching in those uh, multiple modes. And I was sort of watching because I'm here in DC and sort of trying to see what was going to happen. And I had an anxiety already building up to it. And so I was watching it and the slowness of the sort of news media to sort of uh, the cable news that I was watching to sort of pick up on and narrate what was kind of happening when when uh, we can see that there was no police there and that people were starting to move in. And then the other thing that I noticed was the way in which both of those things were uh, reflecting each other so that the cable news media, the footage that they were showing was the footage that was coming from Twitter and Twitch and Parler and not coming from necessarily their own people on the ground. So this sort of thing was um, confusing and eerie. <laughs> I mean, I was actually, you've already all begun to actually get into the question I was going to ask next, which was actually how you access this event and what its impact was on you. And there was a sense of that, you know, oh, you go to TV to watch. But then also it seems to me a sense that television, which in, you know, 30 years ago would have been the only source pretty much of, what, of things. You went to television for images and it was the only source, is actually one among many sources and maybe no longer the most immediate in the sense of being in the center of the action available source if people are willing to 
publicize their own insurrection. I think that's an important point, Mimi. You know, what this whole event for me evoked was um, just memories back to some of the earliest work I did, um, you know, 20 years ago on urban uprisings. You know, I did a did a, a book on sort of TV news coverage of the LA uprisings in 1982. And I happened to sort of um, contrast my own personal on the ground experiences because I took my camcorder, which, you know, was the technology we had back then, out into the street and videotaped, you know, what was happening in certain areas and then compared that to what I was seeing in the news coverage. And what that drove home for me was the way that news is constructed. Um, it's not like there's this reality out here that we just find. It's, it's framed and constructed in a particular way. And I think today with the proliferation of different types of media uh, and the fact that individuals with their smartphones can record and then post immediately to Twitter, the domain of possible images and stories is greater than it's ever been. And because of that, you know, reality itself is always up for, um, for, for contests of various sorts. And, and, and it's not like the news media can sort of close off a particular reading of what's happening. And you, and you saw them struggling for that. And I think, you know, the point that, that Eva made, you know, it's sort of the differences between what, you know, she was seeing on Twitter and other places and the fact that the, the mainstream news media are actually using that material just speaks to the moment we're in. I think the news media, the traditional news media are still grappling with how to handle that. You know, I mean, I think the last four years of this presidency has been sort of a, a crisis for the mainstream media, just trying to figure out, you know, what their legitimate or, or sort of appropriate role is, um, you know, as journalists and, and what it means to be the fourth estate. I think all of that is, is, being, um, is being sort of, you know, um, bandied about now and, and people are trying to figure out answers. I find all of this really interesting because it does change you know, when it comes to the reputation of television and what its status is in a particular of the news media and as kind of the source you're supposed to want to go to immediately. And if not the old networks, at least you're supposed to go to the new cable news networks, that there's lots of other channels now or lots of other places where images of events are being very immediately distributed and made available in a different kind of way than they are on traditional news. And I think that, you know, it's the intersections of these or perhaps, you know, the, those of you who move among these different channels um, seems to be sort of the crux of what I think the optics title is about, um, the optics subject, what we're trying to sort of think through. Brenda? Thanks. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add the kind of obvious thing that we're all living through, which is COVID. And I, I really feel that it's even more contributing to a, a fissure between news content and entertainment content uh, because television has really had this golden uh, resurgence under COVID of, of providing a lifeline for people, but not so much in its news. Uh, although people are, are watching it, it's really in its entertainment content. Um, and certainly has uh, been critical for me, uh, not just because I teach it, but because I consume it and I need the stories that are available to me in all of these very many different formats, just as a, a, a kind of way to make it through all this. So, right. So that that's the other part of this, which is there's the news media, which is trying to deal with these events. And then there's the entertainment media, which become a certain kind of escape. I don't know, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure I love that word, but 
or a kind of respite, I guess might be a better word, from the kind of tensions and stresses. Sometimes even a parallel. I mean, uh, if you look at The Handmaid's Tale, for instance, that's mm-hmm. not a respite from anything. Right. That's a brutal watch. <laughs> yeah. And yet it's it's yeah. the most exquisite commentary on the form of fascist totalitarianism that we've seen on the rise um, of many. There are many, many really excellent um, scripted and non-scripted programs that I think are doing important social commentary. Right. So they both engage with the social crises in productive ways and maybe sometimes also offer certain other scripted shows might offer a kind of respite. So there's kind of like a spectrum of potential. Yeah, I think of it as a paratext, right? So that it's happening in conjunction with the other conversations that are going on. I mean, I think it's interesting how we've talked about both the news and what it does and the kind of immediacy of a particular kind of event and then kind of transmedial or in term, you know, that there's lots of media that are doing these things and now different forms of or, or modes of television in terms of fiction and nonfiction. Um, and I'm wondering if you all would be willing to amplify on this, that, that last issue in the way that Brenda talked about it, which is, you know, how has your television viewing changed? Or are you watching more or less? And what kinds of things are you watching? And are you, you know, engaging with, you know, the crises issues of the moment through the panoply of fiction shows that make that available? Or are you escaping? And of course, these are not mutually exclusive. You could be doing all of these things over the course of a day or a week or a month. I um, have been going through a bunch of cycles since the March 2020. So at first I was like, whoo, I get to watch all of the television that I want. (laughs) (laughs) And it was hours of dystopic uh, sort of things. But then I I just, when when the things started happening um, with uprisings in the summer, I became overwhelmed by that, and I uh, went into a spot where I watched all that has been continuing, where I just decided to watch all five seasons of Bull, and that <laughs> is um, maybe a respite, but it's like Lovecraft Country became too overwhelming for me, but Bull, even though its representations are every, the Black person did it every single time, but um it was soothing or easy to watch while also looking at the news on my phone, I think, is what. And so I didn't have to think about it a lot. And then I became interested in how they were going to represent what's happening in the pandemic and how that is going on. As I talked to um, some friends who, uh, a friend who was cast on the show, is how I started watching it. And she was talking to me about uh, uh, the production practices and how she was able to be on set. Yeah, it's, it's been a lot. I just keep a journal of what I've been watching throughout, along with a lot of news. Yeah, for me, it, TV isn't, I don't know, I guess I don't really approach it as like a form of escapism in that the news is the bad stuff and then the, the scripted series or reality TV is, is, is the escape. I think I often find that a lot of forms of television are particular forms of thinking about race um, and thinking about class and, and, and gender politics. And so sometimes watching um, 
I don't know, sometimes watching a, a contemporary show is just is, is like equally as frustrating and not as much of an escape as as it could seem. So I tend to watch kind of old things. I never really, I don't really keep up too much with a lot of the new shows. Like there are, there are things that will, you know, spark my interest, you know, things that explicitly try to cater to my demographic. I've watched like everything with an Asian American female protagonist. So Dash and Lily and the Babysitter's Club and all of those movies on Netflix, but I never really adjusted to the binge era. So like when I watch TV, I don't really care for quality content because I feel like I work too hard during the day. And when I watch TV, I kind of want the childhood comforts of flow and like the occasional appointment viewing. And at the same time, I don't really care to pay for cable. It's just the like the Napster. That's like just the part of me that grew up on Napster. Um, so I decided as an adult, I wouldn't pay for cable. So I watched this thing um, called Pluto TV, which is a Roku app. And that is a, a television service that's owned by Viacom, um, CBS right now. And it's it's free and it's advertiser supported. And it, it just has like all of these, just has all of this random content in a sort of a digital and linear fashion. You know, there's reality TV channels, there's like the Latino channel, there's kids channel, things like that. But it just shows kind of like bottom barrel stuff that's kind of old. And that way I can just experience flow and... It's yeah, TV is basically kind of a blanket. So, you know, it's just something I put on and don't want to think too much about. So I've had a lot of fun watching Detritus, like Baywatch and um, like the Bob Ross, the Joy Painting with Bob Ross. You know, Carol Burnett is on there. There's a lot of really interesting gems on Pluto TV. I mean, I'll say this, that I guess I'm the queen of what many people would consider bottom of the barrel TV, but I don't like make those distinctions. <laughs> I think television is television. And I've been known to say, I'm really not interested in auteur TV. <laughs> um, you know, I, I might, cons- but except for some, there's always an exception, you know, there's like, but there's just a small number of exceptions. But I've actually will say this. I think that because we're at home all the all the time, so it seems like there should be nothing to do but watch TV. I have found it harder and harder to watch TV. Mm. Um, and I've been long term working on the Hallmark Channel, and so like I try to watch all of their movies and I watch them all multiple times. And I've been finding them almost impossible to watch except in 20 minute increments <laughs> and this is like uh, unbelievable to me because i've been you know watching this intensively for like three years i've found it hard to watch entertainment tv because there's something about this moment that it's like entertainment tv is like too escapist and the rest of you know news is too intense for me and so i've actually watched less tv in the past six months than I probably have at any point in my life, except for like dropping in on like sports, sport games, sports, and I'm not even a sports fan. I'll sit in th- through a basketball game that I have no interest in and just be bored. It's a very odd response. I'm not sure what to make of it. And certainly when it comes to how I perceive and understand television, I find it, mo- if it you know, just professionally really interesting that television has gotten as dispersed as it has. And both in terms of where you watch it, how you watch it, who makes it and what you're watching. Just thinking about the the small piece that we're looking at at UCLA, we're, we're doing this annual Hollywood diversity report. And one of the things we've tracked over the last seven years since the initial report 
just the dispersion of different media outlets and platforms um, and the concurrent rise in diversity, at least in terms of on-screen representations um, because of that. And, and I think a lot of it, well, there are two things going on. There's the technological changes that we've been talking about in terms of streaming and so forth and so on, but also, you know, demographic change, which, you know, continues to move apace as the nation, you know, barrels towards uh, majority minority status, which of course has a lot to do with what we saw in Washington on January 6th, but that's a whole other story. And I think early on when we started this process, the industry really kind of thought about diversity as a nuisance. It's not something they didn't really want to have to deal with. Um, but if someone brings it up, we'll appease your, your concern. We'll throw in a, a character here, a character there, but we're not really going to change the way we do business. But along the way, as the technology started to shift, the streaming became more important. As it became more about subscribers, you know, for the Netflixes and the Hulus and so forth and so on, and the realization that the global market really looks a lot more like America's diversity than, than Europe, which is kind of the model that a lot of the traditional networks operated on. It just made business sense for them to kind of move in that direction. And once those stories started to become available and, and people started to see themselves and identify with characters and with stories, it was like you know Pandora's box had opened and it was kind of hard to put it back. And I think that that's one of the reasons why you've seen this you know, dramatic increase in diversity on screen and even to some degree and the people behind the scenes telling the stories, if not in the executive suites, which we haven't seen at all, but in uh, the people who control the process. But, but certainly um, the, the audience, the audiences um, have become a lot more diverse and have acquired a taste for binging. Some of us, I mean, some of us, I mean, I guess you don't, but, but a lot of people do and, and certain types of stories. And that's led to this, um, amazing proliferation of different types of storytelling across dozens and dozens of outlets that wouldn't have been imaginable, you know, 15 years ago. I mean, I think back to, you know, well, I, I imagine what it must have been like in 1918, 1919, during the, the last pandemic. We didn't have access to this. And I think we'll probably be studying this for years, but a lot of people are using television as that blanket, you know, to kind of get through the moment. Myself, you know, I go back and forth. I mean, I, you know, I, I have a routine that I've kind of over over the last several months, I think has emerged. You know, I get up in the morning, I'm watching MSNBC, I flip over to CNN, you know, I read the New York Times, you know, I read the Washington Post, typically on my smartphone, the key articles. And um, when I can't take it around about one o'clock or so, I, I, I move on, you know, if I'm not working, you know, I'll move on to um, something that I guess could be labeled as a respite or, or possibly an, an escape. And, and I, too, have been looking at old shows. I mean, like old sitcoms from the, the early 1990s, you know, when I really feel depressed and, and sort of like, gosh, this thing will never end, you know, just to kind of refuel the tank so that I can you know, start the next day with news and dealing with the issues of the moment. So I, I think people are coping with it in different ways. And I think the availability of all this material has, has given people options that we didn't have before. I'm not sure if it's a good thing or it's a bad thing. I mean, to some level, I think the fragmentation is potentially a bad thing because we, we can't establish a, a common frame that I think we need in a democracy, but it's, um, you know, double-edged sword, I think. I agree with the double-edged sword thing, especially because when we had the com, you know, the so-called com, you know, common unified story, it was classed, raised, yep. gendered in a very particular yep. way. So it was a very constricting story, Absolutely. even if it was the common story. And there's ways in which, one likes to imagine we could have a rich and proliferating diversity without it leading to alternative facts and disinformation. 
and the kind of kickback of white supremacy running wild literally through the Capitol. Um, one would like to imagine that, but that's not what has happened mm -hmm. so far. And so I think that the question then of tele, you know, there, you know, I did grow up in the old days of, you know, television and three networks and, you know, fatherly and grandfatherly fi male figures telling us the truth on the evening news. Of course, when I was young, I just rolled my eyes and ignored it. <laughs> but because, <laughs> you know, what 10-year-old girl takes any of that seriously? You know, so I'm, I'm not so loath to give that up. But one would like to imagine that what comes in to replace it is more of a robust kind of diversity, not craziness. You know, and not, you know, the re resurgence of horrible racist misogyny. That is the challenge. Yeah, it is the challenge. And it's just, you know, given where we are now, it's just hard to imagine a productive way forward. So I guess I'm going to ask you all whether, that, whether you imagine there are productive ways forward and what those might be. This is Melissa. I mean... I think the Trump presidency and COVID has really made it clear to, especially COVID, the, the journalism class as a whole, that you know there is a kind of Ivy League cronyism. Um, and I think there's more attention now to um, diversity in, in journalism. So I don't know, I, I've been, I was reading an article about something called reparative journalism that is starting to think about uh, the ways in which journalism has ignored like structural vulnerabilities um, and how, you know, sites like ProPublica, you know, there are new kind of forms of reporting that are, are trying to produce quality reporting and quality fact building, not just through the kind of like anodyne consensus building of the usual outlets. So I think that's, I think that's interesting. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to imagine because we've gone so far down the road in terms of fragmentation and disinformation and there's lots of money behind mm -hmm. disinformation yeah. and power so that's which is really troubling too but that's but not surprising i don't know if this is the way forward but uh, one of the terms that's been thrown about on uh, cable news a lot and in uh, politics is accountability right and speaking about what happened on january 6th and um, people's part in this, and I am often struck or have been struck by the the <laughs> newscasters on MSNBC referring to themselves, referring to the media. I'm saying that in quotes without, and how the media needs to take accountability for the way that it's represented the uprisings of the summer versus January 6th, but never really like talking about how they themselves are the media and what their place in that might be. So accountability uh, is an interesting way in which other forms of news media have been trying to reckon with these things. So I don't know if that's a whole way forward, but it's um, something to think about. And I don't totally know what accountability means or looks like. No, I think that's interesting. And it gets us into this whole back to the issue 
which is one of our central concerns, which is the image of the media and how we think about the media. And it's weird that the media will talk about the media and mean others instead of themselves. Um, They haven't quite made the full self-reflexive turn, which most media, popular media, engage. So journalism will have to get with that program, I guess. But that also gets me to one other and perhaps, you know, final issue, I'm not sure. You'll all have a chance to jump in at the end if I, we missed something that what do you think is important, which is that we've been really focusing on the U, U.S. television and U.S. politics, but for good reason, because of, you know, what happened in, you know, the very month, you know, less than a month ago. How does this then play in terms of global image. And I think that American television has always been considered the kind of global television hegemon, which it really is, has, wasn't necessarily and certainly isn't anymore. But on that very note, I thought it was really interesting during the um, attempted coup that a lot of the news people were talking during the day about how horrifying this image of America is and how the image of American democracy has been besmirched and ruined and degraded globally. As if, and I mean, from my perspective, that event was just the culmination of that, that that's a process that's been going on at least since the start of the Trump administration, if not at various other points prior to that. So it was really nothing new. But I thought that that was interesting that that was a moment where news itself understood that this image of what was going on was a definitive smear in some ways. And they were like talking about it. It was perhaps the only reflexive moment I've seen of late coming out of journalists in such bold terms. So I'm wondering if you have image about the global perspectives on this or whether and how what we're experiencing you know, also plays in other global contexts and isn't necessarily restricted to the United States. Well, I guess it's like, oh, this is Melissa, it seems like weirdly naive that, you know, these commentators think that people outside the U.S. have as respective of a picture of the United States as, as, as the commentator does. So I think that just reflects more on their own understanding of like U.S. foreign policy and, US, you know, the behavior of Americans abroad than what, what people abroad think. I mean, one of the consequences of both the spread of media and the dominance of U.S. media production is it's not contained by these borders, much like COVID, right? Sorry to keep bringing us back there. but And so what's happening here is accessible across the the world to anyone who wants to register for the right accounts or follow the same people. So I think in in that, to your earlier question about social change, that to me is a very heartening, it makes me feel happy that these uh, restrictions for involvement uh, have gone down, but it also makes me concerned because so many people are finding common cause with groups without having to think through or have any kind of archiving or uh, accountability in terms of, uh, you know, you have to fact check before these ideas can be put out into the ether. So to me, it's kind of the best of times and the worst of times as far as those things are concerned. I mean, I guess I also think this best of times, worst of times 
is in part an effect of the going, we'll go tie this right back to the beginning, the great dispersion of what television even is and the ways in which there's so many different platforms and so many potential sources and so many different ways of accessing different kinds of things that it gives us lots of possibilities and lots of different people finally getting to make media, but also then changes. I think that what happens is it changes the terms of accountability. I think it's interesting. A couple of people have brought that term up now. So I'm going to like let Eva and Brenda can follow that, that who's accountable to whom and in what terms and what that term means in different contexts then gets changed all the time. And that, you know, people, you know, alight on narratives of various sorts that circulate through media in different ways and take it as a certain kind of truth. And then that has its own effects. And that can happen in big-time media like Fox News, but it can happen in also more marginal media arenas of various sorts. And all of these things kind of shift through levels. And it's very hard to sort of even trace where things start sometimes. Yeah, it had me thinking the same question, like accountability to who or what, and how the news media is, it was, it was really, or, you know, even even the Democratic Party was, it was really trying hard to push for accountability uh, to the process, right? To like the U.S. political process, like that there had to be some form of accountability, but like through a particular process to like re-legitimate, re-legitimate itself. Um, and it reminded me of what um, Sarah Kessler said a few episodes ago about watching The Bachelorette and watching the election together and how both of those were really about producing trust in the process, whether it is, you know, the process of falling in love on through this reality show or the process of like, we're going to go through this political ritual and how, yeah, on the one hand of, for elites, there's this, you know, desire to re-legitimate these processes. And then on, you know, on the other hand, you have people who are trying to create accountability in other ways. And you can see that in like the debates over cancel culture that have been coming up, you know, all of these media elites like coming out against cancel culture because it's, I don't know, mob mentality or, it ruins their lives or, or whatnot. Um, but yeah, there is, I think there is very much this distinction between like order, you know, the usual order and like conceptions of justice that, you know, activists have always been pushing for, but are really coming to the forefront at this moment. I think that it's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of dense knots that we've like poked at. Um, and we are getting near, I think, where we're supposed to start wrapping up. So I'm wondering if each of you wants to just make some final comments on either things we've already discussed or things you think that are the implications of what we've discussed and for, you know, subjects for sort of further thought and further pondering. One of the things that I have also been thinking about in terms of like this dispersion of the fragmentation is uh, how Zoom plays into this whole Zoom world is television and how that is reflected back to us in so many ways on um, TV, like the way that they interview, like on cable television, uh, the way that they interview people is now through Zoom. So we are like in our living rooms, watching people in their living rooms mm -hmm. and everybody's yelling at each other and thinking about Zoom as this new part of TV. Like we can go to talks now on Zoom, academic talks or 
and there was the that series of get the vote out tv series that were just zoom boxes reading a script so yeah i just i think about that a lot as i obsess over the backgrounds of people on tv and sort of uh, on the cable news and think of it as like a new way to watch hgtv <laughs> and people's uh, homes yeah, I think that's um, that's a really interesting point. Um, you know, I, I think back to the the early days of the pandemic for me, and, and just the fascination I had looking at everyone's living room as these commentators that I used to see in the studio are now talking from their living room. I mean, I think you know, I don't know that we go back to the way things were before. I think that you know, I think we're going to see a shift in the way um, this type of coverage is 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 um, sort of delivered to us. I mean, if you think back to the Democratic Convention and, and kind of this whole innovation of doing the, the roll call of the states from every single state and seeing that as opposed to a bunch of people, you know, crowded into an auditorium. I mean, it, I think that there's something to be, be gained here in this sort of uh, condensing of time and space where we can pull all this together and really using the technology in the way that technologists talked about this, you know, decades ago. I think it's become real for us now in, in, in the moment, the necessity of the moment. So for me as a sociologist, you know, I mean, I'm really interested in people and how people engage with the moment. I think we're going to learn a lot in the coming years um, about how people made sense, how, how they made sense of the media they engaged with under the conditions that, um, that we're all um, navigating right now. And ethnographies of media engagement, I, I think, are going to um, be really telling and, and, and really take us back to some of the age-old questions that I think we've been dealing with in media studies for, for generations. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I think this moment will be an important um, important um, important moment in the, in the study of these topics. I was, um, you know, thinking about Darnell's work with the Hollywood Diversity Report and how, you know, things really are getting better in scripted media. I mean, they're still bad, but there is, <laughs> there is more diversity. Yeah. You know, there is more diversity. I mean, in part because there's just more television now. Mm -hmm. But the kind of civic imaginary we have within the media ecosystem which is in part built by, you know, news media and think pieces and commentaries and all that is so still so whitewashed and class evasive that we still have things like it produces things like the Oscar diversity quota. Mm -hmm. Right. So I guess I want to make sure that we reach our goals, but not in like the worst possible way. Yeah, I, I guess I just want to always be an optimist, even in the light of so much that makes it hard to be such a I've been doing some academic leadership work with the Big Ten, and they're putting this metaphor in our head that I think is relevant to representation and to diversity issues, uh, which is to say that you don't always cause change by shooting an arrow and then, aha, it's going to be different. It's, it's more like a wave hitting a shore and it's about this constant erosion. And what that often means in academic institutions is that you have to uh, repeat, repeat, repeat. You keep saying it, you keep coming back, you keep uh, launching the wave against the shore. And I think that's true about these broader issues as well, that there's a uh, it's it's quite difficult to calibrate where we are with respect to progress, right? Um, and 10 years from now, I want to believe that we're in a very, very different place. So uh, sometimes there's backlash and sometimes there's movement backward. But my hope is that we're, you know, the arc of the moral universe is uh, moving toward justice. 
I think that that's a really great optimistic view. I wish I could be that optimistic, so I will hold on to that. I'm not sure I will be able to fully persuade myself, but I think it's always good to have that kind of optimistic vision and threshold because otherwise you just like collapse in a heap and can't even move. So no matter how real, how, how much of a pessimist I am, I like having people remind me of the more positive potentialities in the world and that, that can keep, you know, keep my eye on some dim light somewhere and imagine we'll get there. So I really appreciate that. I guess when it comes to the future for me, I'm, something Darnell said in terms of the reports he does and where you know diversity is coming and where diversity hasn't gotten. When I'm teaching classes and these are you know I'm teaching stuff on romantic comedy or television genres and things like that, and my undergraduate students who I'm in a department where there's a lot of hands-on making, script writing, media making. And they always resent this because I say, you all should want to go get business degrees and go run the studios because those are the people who have the real say-so. And if you really want to see change in the media, you have to like get to the you know, executive suite. And they kind of like grudgingly roll their eyes and indulge me in saying that. And then they move on and have whatever life they really want to have. So I think that on that note, I want to thank all of the participants for talking about the issues today. I'll remind you who they were, although I'm sure you, so they're hard to forget. Brenda Weber, Melissa Pooksichart, Darnell Hunt, and Eva Hageman. I want to thank you all for your contributions and your lively conversation. On behalf of the co-organizers for the podcast, Brandy, Monk, Peyton, Lynn Joy Rich, and Hunter Hargraves. I also want to thank all of our sponsors, SCMS, Media, the Malcolm S. Forbes Center for Culture and Media Studies, and the Department of Modern Culture and Media at Brown University, the Department of Communication at Denison University, and the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame. Kudos also go out to Chris Becker and Bill Kirkpatrick for all their help with recording, and Todd Thompson for providing the music and editing expertise for this series. This is the mid-season finale, and We'll be back with more episodes over the course of the next few months. If there's an issue or topic that you would like to see addressed, please send your suggestions via email to talkingtelevisioninapandemic at gmail.com, via Twitter with the hashtag TalkTVInAPandemic, or on Facebook, join the Acamedia Facebook group and post questions. I'm Mimi White with Talking Television in a Time of Crisis. Thanks so much for listening. Please be well, stay healthy, and wear a mask. And when you go to any indoor place, wear two masks. Thank you.